This podcast is part of the Shareable Podcast Network. Learn more at shareable.fm. Not every guest takes me up on the opportunity, but I like to do a segment called The Mic Swap, where I make my guest into the host, and then I become the guest. I let them take the conversation wherever they want to take it, ask me whatever they want, and uh, it's a lot of fun, I think. This is Mic Swap. Hey, welcome to Shareable. We have a great uh, guest with us here today. Uh, Jeff actually founded Shareable, and I have the privilege and honor of being able to interview him today. So, so Jeff, welcome to the show. Excited to have you here, and uh, let's jump. Let's jump right in, man. Awesome. Like, tell us something about yourself that most people wouldn't know. That's tough because I, I'm a very uh, out loud and out in the open kind of person. I generally share everything that's going on with me and, uh, and what I'm into. So things that people wouldn't know, that's, that's, that's a tough one to unearth, honestly. I'm not quite sure. I love to cook. I don't know if I talk about that on the show. I guess it depends where people know me from, but you know, I'm, a, I'm, I'm pretty out there. I, pretty, I put everything pretty much out there. Yeah. So, so, so there's nothing like from the eighth grade. There's nothing like from uh, uh, an experience or a trip. And I'll give you one for me. Like when I, I actually, it was an eighth grade. I went to a grade school called Pekendika Hills and it was on Rockefeller State. It was a public school, not a private school. And they had this eighth grade painting and I didn't have an artistic bone in my body. And I painted this target and then I didn't like it. So I threw paint on it. I took the end of the brush and swirled it. And I won the eighth grade painting out of 200 people and my painting still hanging in that school. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> and, I, and I, and I've never painted since. So, okay. I've got a story uh, then that that sparked for me. Um, yeah. So it was, I think it was like seventh or eighth grade. We had a project in like one of the, like the workshop wood shop type classes. Right. And the assignment was that we were broken into teams and we had to take one piece of paper and make a link for a chain. And everybody was like trying to origami this sort of like contraption of, of um, you know, to, to create this loop that would be a, for a chain because the, the goal was to create the strongest chain. So I'm sitting there with my team and we're going through different designs and we're going through different designs and we're getting towards the end of it and we don't have anything yet. So I decided, screw it, I've got an idea. So I just took the paper and I twisted it and I twisted it until it was like really tight. And then I just wrapped the two ends together and like kind of made like a little knot. Well, turns out I had the strongest link in the entire chain. And it was a last minute <laughs> idea that just came to me. But there's a, an example very similar to you where I was like, I don't know what to do. Like, I'm not an engineer, but seems like this would work and it's easy. Yeah. So let's go. So I twisted it and it was the strongest link in the chain. Isn't it funny where, how those artistic things creep into our, 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 our subconscious? And I don't even know how it got there, but uh, it's pretty cool uh, to go back and walk through. I don't know if your link's still in the hallway, but my painting's still in the hallway. So I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty proud of that. So um, tell, me, tell me about one of your uh, greatest uh, failures. And I hate even using that word because, again, we all learn from it. But tell me about one of your past failures that you uh, got through and what you learned from it? Hmm, that's a good one. Um, let's see. There's been so many and it, you know, in terms of like looking at the scale of different failures, that's, it's kind of a fun project. Um, I would say the one that I've learned the most, one of the ones that I've learned the most from is that in my early twenties, I tried to start uh, my 
probably it was my first business if I had to really think about it. I started a personal chef service back in, it was around uh, 2001 to 2003, 2004. So I've been cooking since I was like seven or eight years old. I love cooking. Uh, I think I'm particularly good at it. And, you know, as a self-taught chef, I just saw this opportunity that there were all these busy professionals and they might want somebody to come in and have dinner prepared for them, um, you know, when they get home from work. So it was uh, in-home fine dining. Name of the company was Rue in-home fine dining, Rue, R-O-U-X, like, uh, you know, a Rue you would use in a gumbo or something like that. So um, I had started this business and I had absolutely no business acumen whatsoever. And I think what I learned most from the failure of, you know, I'd probably done maybe I did like one or two in-home gigs and I did probably three catering gigs over like three or four years. Um, and, and like the events were successful, but here's what I learned. What you do is not as important. Like the working in the business is not nearly as important as working on the business. And this was my first, um, you know, lesson into this because, you know, I would do these catering events and people were like, this food's amazing. Like, this is absolutely remarkably good food. And I was like, great. So what's next? Nothing, no more business, nothing. So it wasn't that it didn't matter that I could cook well. I had no idea how to get more business. I had no idea. I had no website, you know, and granted this was all before mobile phones and like, like, I think it would do really well nowadays. Um, but then it, there just was no model for it. And I didn't really build a market for it, even though there was a bunch of people that probably would have taken advantage of it. Uh, this whole blue apron model, like the whole, you know, oh, home yeah. delivery food thing really took off. And I just couldn't see all I had in my head was what I wanted, right? Like what I wanted this thing to be the accolades, the ego. And it was all about what I was good at versus creating a business around what people wanted and making yeah. sure they knew about it. And that, that happens a lot in, in different businesses that people are very doctors are like that, that and, and other like service providers. They go to school for 10 years, they come out, they start a business and they don't have a clue how to be in business. So yeah. it, it's pretty fascinating. So let me ask you a question. So if you were on Beat Bobby Flay, what is your go-to dish? Oh man. Well, if it's against Bobby Flay, I would probably, so I have a thing where like, I'm extremely competitive. So like, if I was going to beat someone, I would want to beat someone at their own game. So I would probably do Southwestern style, uh, flared cuisine, like spicy related food with beat Bobby Flay. So I would want like a fried chicken battle. And, uh, I would want to do like a, a spicy fried chicken with like a Southwestern slaw of some sort, and maybe some like, you know, um, you know, uh, tamales or something like that, like spicy tamales. So I would want to like take whatever Bobby Flay, I would probably study Bobby Flay and I would look at what are his best things. And I would take his things and beat him at his own game with his own stuff. Um, because I, I, it like in sports, I've always been a fan of like the trash talker who could back it up. Um, or like those moments in basketball where like iconic moment for me, was like, Allen Iverson versus, you know, uh, the Sixers versus the Lakers. And I think it was 2003 or whatever. Iverson hits the three and steps over to Ron Liu. It's like, those are the moments that I live for is like, not just the win, but like the slight gloating, but in the spirit of competition. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, again, as I say, it ain't bragging if you can do it. So yeah. it's, uh, <laughs> that, that's pretty cool. And you made me hungry, doggone it, for fried chicken and uh, with a Southwestern flair. I love slaw. 
and, yeah. and fried chicken. My fried chicken I, is I amazing. Had... I have uh, an Instagram, uh, by the way, uh, that's for, it's called Love Pie Kitchen. And that's, uh, that's yeah. something I probably don't tell people about enough, but like I have an Instagram called love pie kitchen and it's for everything I make at home for dinner usually. So I just yeah. take pictures of stuff I make for dinner. And if you go on there, you'll see actually some of my fried chicken and it is some of the most mouthwateringly beautiful, amazing fried chicken you could ever have. I, I stand by my fried chicken and it could win a contest. Well, um, that's pretty amazing. And again, the, the cooking thing, again, those, those are like passions uh, and, and, and you're not making a living at it, but it's like a side hustle that you love to do. Yep. And, and, and again, it sounds like uh, you do it really, really well. So we're going to have to figure out how I can share that with you someday. Uh, so tell me like whether personally or professionally, what, what keeps you up at night? You know, is there anything going on in your life, any challenge or anything right now that's uh, uh, you're, you're dealing with at this point? I would say the thing that perennially keeps me up at night is impact is, is, did I do enough today? Did I do enough this week? Did I do enough this month? Because I'm, I'm constantly haunted by the idea that tomorrow I'm going to walk outside and not look both ways and get hit by a septa bus. And that's the end of my story. And am I proud of what I've left behind so far? So it's very much that, um, you know, leave everything on the court sort of mentality, like play to the last buzzer. Um, I'm constantly looking at whether or not I gave it my best effort. And on days where I don't, that sometimes keeps me up a little bit at night. And sometimes literally it keeps me up at night. And I put in a little bit of extra hours at night so that I feel like I've done what I, what I'm uh, supposed to do. Um, but every, you know, every month, every year, every week, when I look back, if there's something that's keeping me up, it's, did I do enough? Where, uh, where do you think that drive comes from or came from? Um, I think there's a lot of different factors. I think one, the fragility of life is a thing that is crystal clear to me. My dad was a funeral director. My mom almost died in a car accident on my last day of high school. I went through a little depression in my teenage years and I watched Dead Poets Society and like the whole Carpe Diem thing, like really stuck in my head. And I think all of that led me to this very like, like there's a lot of urgency behind having like doing something that matters in life. The other thing is that I think I, uh, I feel the suffering in the world, like very deeply. And it, it, it like haunts me like homelessness. I, I think I mentioned to you is a majorly, uh, you know, impactful cause to me to help, because I think one, there's no reason the wealthiest nation in history that we should have anybody sleeping on the streets, number one, but number two, I, I think about what it would be like to sleep on the streets by yourself in the cold, alone, feeling like nobody potentially cares about you. And when I think about that, it like, it sometimes just, it, it just destroys me inside. If I, if I get too deep into thinking about it, if I really like try it on. And I yeah. think sensing that there's that kind of suffering, any kind of suffering, really, I don't want that to exist. I, I believe that if we're here for anything, it should be to make a better world for all of us, something where we all thrive and can have good lives. And, you know, when there's adversity, that there's support there. So I, I think for me, the whole, you know, my whole thing is about superheroism. A lot of that really comes from the idea of like wanting to save the world, to make it better, to change it so that people don't have to feel alone or suffer. And I think it comes from, you know, the urgency is one piece, but the feeling of any kind of suffering, anytime I felt alone, I feel like nobody should have to go through that. Yeah. There's a great story I heard about a woman who lived in Australia 
and she had a uh, house of prostitution come in next to her. And I think it's legal over in Australia. But she asked a woman who was in the Salvation Army, she was like, what am I supposed to do? They just opened up you know, this house of uh, prostitution next door. And the woman told her, well, what would you do if a neighbor moved in? She said, well, I'd bake them cupcakes. She said, well, go, go do that. So she goes home, she bakes cupcakes, knocks on the door the next day. And like, how do you turn down cupcakes? Yeah, you can't. And, 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 and literally now she has this whole thing called the cupcake ministry, which is, you know, years later is helped transitioning women out of that industry uh, all through, again, doing one simple thing that she knew how to do. Uh, and it's actually called the cupcake ministry. And, and again, I love that. And, and I always talk to people and you and I talked about it a little bit before, uh, you know, we can't do everything, but we can all do something. Uh, some of us can write big checks. Uh, if you can't, then give your time, give your effort. Uh, if you have your eyes open and are aware of it, you'll walk by somebody on the street uh, at, that, you know, that you can help, that you can take and, you know, take to a Chick-fil-A or, or you can take them home and make a chicken. Uh, and, 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 you know, the whole point is that we're so often caught up in the busyness of our own lives that we just walk by opportunities. And so I really try to help be more intentional and, and, and be aware of it. And then rather walking by, you know, how can I do to meet, what can I do to meet some immediate need here? So, uh, that's good for you. I mean, that, that the heart uh, that wants to help uh, and give back is, is, is a good thing to have. So let me ask you kind of a, a, a question uh, a little bit related. If you could come back as anybody, past or present, who would that be and why would you choose that person? Or would you choose to be a superhero? I don't know. No, let's not, let's, let's not make okay, it superhero. Okay, so no, let's no make fictional. it real. We'll make it real. Yeah, no fiction. Yeah. Um, I mean, if past I could, present. if I could come back past or present, um, can I can I include myself? You can. I would come back as me. I would give it a do over. Try again, or I would, you know, uh, yeah, I would just do a do over. I'd come back as me again. What what what? Give me one of your biggest things that you would want to do over. What is it that you would want to do over? What would you focus on doing differently? Yeah. Knowing what you know now and going back and doing it over. Oh, knowing what I know now, I think, first of all, I would uh, accept myself and love myself much earlier in life, number one. Number two, I would also try to be very clear on I'm not broken, I'm different. Um, so I didn't start reading, like reading, reading, regularly reading until my 30s. And the reason why is that all through school, they gave me books and I didn't want to read those books and I was bored by them. And part of it is that because of my ADHD and because of what I'm actually interested in, I don't find fictional stories very interesting. But the minute I discovered that I could read nonfiction and I could read books that helped me learn things and grow, I became a maniac about it. I read 27 books this year so far, um, which some people that's not even a lot, but for me, that's my record. And I love it. Now I read, every time I read, I feel like I'm getting stronger. I feel like I'm getting smarter. And if I could, I would start that at age 12. Because if, if, if I read Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People at 12 instead of at 19, and if I had read you know, any number of these other classics or, or, or great business books or books about how people operate or whatever, if I had read them when they first came out, 
where I could be right now, I, I am the product of self-learning. And if I could pick up that self-learning at a much earlier age, I think that the things that I'd be able to do are remarkable. Also, I'd uh, invest in both Apple and Bitcoin much earlier. <laughs> well, well, again, I, I always tell people, uh, be the best version of yourself because everybody else has already taken. And, yeah. and again, that's rare that somebody says, I'd come back as myself, but that, 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 that's awesome. Good for you. Um, so you said you grew up in a home uh, and your dad was a funeral director. Talk a little bit about that. Un unpack some of that. that there must be some interesting stories around uh, uh, of things you've seen or heard. How, what was that like for you? Yeah. So, I mean, it was very sobering from a very early age. Like I think for a, a lot of people until a very, you know, late age in their life, like death is this like very, um, it's like not talked about or it's like very like, it's kind of known, but like, it's not like right there. But like, I would go to my, to work with my dad at the funeral home. And like, I knew that there were like bodies a few, few doors over and like that there were services that were happening funerals. So I became very aware that people had a life and they had a point where their life ceased to be. And that was that. Um, so it was very sobering from an early age. I became very aware of this life and death that you, you are here and then you are not. And I think the other thing about it that I think has been probably possibly as impactful is that you know, because my dad was a funeral director and he, you know, he had gone to Vietnam and he grew up in a time where it was like, you know, you go to, you know, you, you, you know, go to high school, you get out of high school, you get a good union job and then you save for retirement, you know, or, or you, you know, you have, you get married, you have kids, you save for retirement yeah. and you die. Right. Like that was kind of like the, the plan. So he has this job and he doesn't love being a funeral director. It wasn't like, that was like his passion in life. So because of that, as I grew up, he taught me very much to try to find something that I loved because I would never work a day in my life if I was doing something that I loved. And he told me this as like a very little kid. And I internalized that message and I never let go of it. And it's one of the reasons why I think I'm psychologically unemployable because why would I like, <laughs> why would I love helping somebody else make money off of my labor? I just don't yeah. understand it. Right. So I think one of the two things that I think I got most from my dad being a funeral director was you know, I appreciated his hustle and his grind. He would get up early. He would work overtime and uh, do it. So, you know, he worked the schedule so that he could get out early and spend time with me. Um, I appreciated that hustle and grind and that he did it in a job that he didn't love and that he encouraged me to do it in a job I loved. So that was the first thing. And the second thing was to be around death made it something that wasn't so mysterious. It was very grounded, very real, very material for me that that was a thing that happened. And I think because of that, I had a, a greater appreciation for life by being around death. Um, yeah, that, that's amazing. I've known a few people in, in, in that industry. And, and, and again, it's number one, you say, okay, how did somebody choose to do that? And then I wonder what it's like living in that world. But uh, uh, it's amazing. It's like you said, it's, it's like when you're around death, it's such a mysterious thing. But then when you're front and center, you know, in the midst of it, and your dad does it, uh, you learn a lot more about it. And, and as I, you know, we talked about before, we're all terminal. It's just a matter of when. Yep. And, you know, you brought that up in the context of, you know, did I do enough? Am I doing enough? Can I leave the world a better place, you know, with whatever time I got left here on earth? And, and I think those are good things to motivate all of us to, you know, be cognizant that we're not guaranteed tomorrow. You know, we can walk out of this interview and get hit by a bus or whatever. And, and, and so don't put off to tomorrow uh, what you can do today. Uh, I remember 
going to the funeral of my brother, uh, who was getting ready to graduate from West Point. Uh, he was captain of the baseball team and the family was going up to have a family reunion. And literally two weeks before he graduated, was supposed to graduate, got an automobile accident and was killed. And, and I remember going up to West Point and it's so vivid in my mind. It, it was like a movie. It's like West Point sits on the bank of the Hudson River uh, and they have this cathedral. Uh, they had the, uh, the Army Corps of Cadets come up uh, the night before they had all 4000 cadets get in the quad and they did a moment of silence and they blew taps. And I mean, I, I, I when I hear Ooh. taps, it takes me back to that moment. Yeah. And then in the, uh, the next day in the cathedral, there were like a thousand people. There were cadets, uh, family, friends, and they had asked if anybody wanted to you know, eulogize uh, David, my brother. And I'd never spoken before. I didn't know anything about it. But after people got up there, it's like something just pulled me out of my seat. And I walked up in front of the people and I said, you know, I did a lot of stuff with my brother, David. Uh, I coached him. I was his coach in high school. We laughed together. We cried together. But I never told my brother that I loved him. Make sure you tell the people that mean the most to you uh, how much you love them because you never know how long they're going to be here. And I mean, I, again, I, I, I try to convey that message every time. And again, death is inevitable for all of us. So how are we going to live our lives uh, and then not be have any regrets uh, that we didn't embrace the people that were so important to us? So I, it's a great lesson you know, that you had. And again, it, it's amazing how your stuff triggers stories in this direction and vice yeah. versa. So uh, yeah, I, 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 I like that. It just, it just keeps pulling more out. So who is, uh, other than your dad, who is the best mentor or role model that, 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 that has helped you really unlock your potential? And, uh, you know, you mentioned Dale Carnegie. I, I took a Dale Carnegie course when I was 22 years old and I never forget there's this guy standing up front and he goes, I know men in the ranks that are going to stay in the ranks. Why? I'll tell you why. Simply because they haven't the ability to get things done. And literally, I open up a lot of my talk. I did a talk in Las Vegas. I think, I don't know if you watched that one, but I, I changed two words. You know, I said, I know men and women in the ranks that are going to stay in the ranks simply because they haven't the ability to get the right things done. And to me, that's the key with what you do and I do is helping people get the right things done. So who was it in your life that helped you get more of the right things done, uh, a mentor or, or somebody else? It's tough to pick just one because there's a lot of people that have had influences on me. Uh, I would say people close in my life. Uh, a lot of the people that I've, I've learned a lot from have been podcast guests or other speakers that I've you know shared the stage with or, or colleagues. Um, I've learned a lot from different people there. I've learned a lot I would say a lot of the bigger, more profound lessons have come from either uh, real or fictional people in media. So I've I've gotten a lot out of some fictional media. I think I mentioned to you before that um, uh, uh, Dead Poets Society made a huge impact on me and, and Robin Williams' uh, character of uh, Professor Keating. Um, so that made a big impact on me. Uh, Seth Godin, Simon Sinek, Adam Grant. Um, a lot of those people have had a profound impact on me in terms of just, you know, individual people that I think have, have made me a better person. If I had to pick one person, I'd have to pick my wife because I honestly believe that she is the one person who creates the space where I feel totally 100% comfortable being me. 
I don't feel like my flaws are flaws. I feel like she just accepts me and understands me and, and creates a safe space for me to be broken sometimes, to be my best self sometimes. And no matter which it is, she's always there and supporting me and being my champion, being my soft place to land. You know, when I'm, when I'm not feeling it, she's just there. She's got my back. So if, and, and really, if I look at the trajectory of my career and where I've had the most success, it's been when she came into my life, it, it, when she came into my life and we started dating, I think from that point forward, I became a better person. And I will say the, the two ways that she's made me a better person, I've become more patient because of her, because I see how patient she is. And I will also say that her, her kindness is absolutely mind boggling to me her ability to just be a kind person. And I'm generally a very kind person, but I also have like a, a, a burning rumbling kind of low grade anger that sits inside of me that partially drives me and I work with it, but I have like an anger reaction to things and I harness that and channel it. But sometimes it also makes me grumpy and kind of angry. And, uh, and she's just loving. She is the reason my book is called The Lovable Leader. She just approaches things with an empathy and a kindness and an, and an openness that I just try to emulate. And what is, what is your wife's name? Erica. Erica. Uh, what a gift. I, I, I mean, Seriously. to have, like you said, a, a, safe, a soft landing spot, uh, somebody who's kind and patient and, and a safe haven. Uh, you know, that, that, that's, that is awesome. Yep. Um, I remember the second date with my wife, again, very similar, different personality, but, uh, you know, my wife's always seen more in me than I've seen in myself, kind of that, you know, that, 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 that centering uh, uh, point. And on our second date, I said, so what do you want to do with your life? I had no clue what I wanted to do with my life <laughs> at the time. She says, well, I want four kids before I'm 30. I want to get my master's in five years and my doctorate in 10. Uh, what do you want to do? And oh I looked God. at her and I was like, this is a, this is the truth. I said, I think I want to marry you. <laughs> and, and we got married nine months later. We had four kids when she turned 30, she got her, her, her uh, master's in five years. She waited till all of our kids were grown and out of the house and went back and got her doctorate uh, as a speech and language pathologist uh, when she was like 47 years old. And I was like, she just is like the ever ready bunny. Wow. So uh, it's like, I tell everybody I've been hanging on to her coattails and she just is a model of, you know, lead follower, get the heck out of the way. Let's go do it. Let's make it happen. There are no excuses. And again, it was just like a, uh, sometimes abrasive, but literally helped pull me up and move me and got me out of my shell and move in the direction that I needed to go. So again, different personalities, but yeah. same outcome. And we did, we just celebrated 41 years. And, and as I told you, we're getting ready to go away tomorrow, just to, just to, to reconnect with each other for a couple of days down to the Bahamas. That's, That's awesome. That's amazing. Can I ask you a question about uh, that? Cause I'm curious if you do this too. So my wife and I actually celebrate something like seven different anniversaries. So like we, I, I, we acknowledge or celebrate our first date. We had both a private and a public wedding. So we got married, just the two of us and, and like yeah. three family members. And then we had a public wedding where we got married by a unicorn, by the way, story for another time. Um, but we celebrate our first date. We celebrate um, when she officially gave me the title of boyfriend. Um, there were like all of these different milestones, uh, yeah. you know, that we celebrate. So we have about five or six anniversaries. I'm wondering if you and your wife celebrate 
multiple anniversaries or acknowledge them or things like that? Well, well we, we do it. Or I should say she does it a little differently. Her birthday is November 6th. We're still celebrating her birthday. We're going to restaurants. Oh, it's my birthday. It's my birthday. Amazing. It's my birthday. Yeah. And, and so it's like, you know, you get the, you get the candle on the dessert, whatever it is. Uh, and, 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 and I mean, that's the kind of the personality that we have. And it's like, it's our anniversary. We went out with three different friends on three different days and celebrated our anniversary. Yeah. You know, oh, it's our anniversary. It's our anniversary. Yeah. She loves to celebrate. She's about life. She is like, just, uh, uh, you know, it's almost like I'm the antithesis. I'm more of a little bit of a stay at home. Yep. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a, I can eat, I can eat a, you know, a, a sandwich from Jersey Mike's. Uh, yeah. She wants to go to Buckhead life and have a, you know, three course meal with glass of wine and, and be around friends. And, and, and I'm, I, I can do it occasionally, but a, again, it's, it's a great connection because uh, again, you know how relationships work. It's not a 50, 50, it's each person pouring a hundred percent in each direction, which really makes it work. And, and I never forget some of the advice I got from a, a, a really uh, a sage uh, a friend. Uh, and I was having an issue with my wife and, and he says to me, Steve, what percentage of this is about her and what percentage of the issue is yours? And I said, I'm about 10%. She's about 90% of the issue. And this, this greatest words he ever said to me, he says, then here's what I want you to do. I want you to focus a hundred percent on your 10% and don't worry about hers because you'll never fix hers. All you can do is be the best version of yourself for your spouse. And, and again, hopefully your spouse will be the best version of herself for you. So uh, that's Sound awesome. Advice. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, good I'll stuff. tell you that wherever uh, my wife and I go, we tell them it's our honeymoon. And the yeah. reason that we do that is because if you see the two of us together, we're just like disgustingly like lovey <laughs> with each other. So everyone would believe it. If we said, Oh, we're on our honeymoon. They'd be like, Oh my God, that's so cute. How long have you been married? We're like three years. <laughs> that's awesome. But, but yeah. I mean, the, the, the opposite of that is how often do you see the husband and the wife sitting at the table with their head down doing social media? Oh yeah. And, and, and literally, literally I'll talk to my wife and I'll, I'll, I'll like, those people haven't talked to each other in half an hour. They're out in the restaurant and both of them are head down. Uh, and again, you know, it's the blessing and the curse of social media. That's kind of the times we're living in. Uh, I, I read a statistic the other day that it, it said that this generation is the most connected generation that we've ever had, but it's the most isolated, depressed and the highest rate of suicide that's ever happened in, in history. Yeah. And, and, and it's amazing because they don't know how to do this. You know, this is great. I love, you know, Zoom is like, I think a great vehicle, but you still have to have that personal interaction where people know how to look you in the eye and talk to you and shake your hand. And I think that is just like been missing. I mean, how, how have you experienced that? I mean, you live and breathe through the digital medium. How do you see that in your world? I mean, I, I ran a social media agency for seven years, got acquired by another digital agency, did that for a year and a half. And when I got out, I got out. I have a very contentious relationship with social media because I think that when I started, I had a very optimistic view that it was going to change the world for the better. It would allow us to connect, find, yeah. find our people, but not find our people and become like a little echo chamber of, of awfulness, but instead find our people so that we feel seen and validated and can be vulnerable and connected and all of those good things. And it turned out that it actually is just poison. It's just poison on society and is ripping apart the fabric of, of who we are. And it's creating a lot of addiction issues 
and, um, and self-confidence issues and all these different things in people because of the way that the software is written and the way that the algorithm works and, and our tendencies as people to gravitate towards the thing that's the loudest or the thing that's the most flashy or the whatever. Um, so I'm, I'm very cautious about social media. I don't put my daughter anywhere on, on any social media. Uh, there's, there's a, a ban slash moratorium on my daughter's likeness being put anywhere on social media. If, you Good know, you. if a cousin no. comes over or anyone comes over and they put it on Instagram, I'm like, Hey, can you take that down? Because I don't want a profile being built on her. And yeah, I a- would ideally like to protect her from it. Um, I know I can't, I, I know that's like a foolish parent thing, but, um, I, I tend to believe that there's a lot of value in digital channels and social media and sharing what's important to you. But I also think that there's a lot of background radiation, I guess I'll call it, that is poisonous uh, to a healthy functioning society and a healthy functioning person that I think we just need a greater awareness about so that we can, by being more aware of it, we can sort of build up an immunity to some of these, um, these, these more negative influences on us. Yeah. And, and again, thank you for being a responsible parent because so many parents are oblivious to it. Uh, uh, you know, we used to tell our kids that trust is the currency that buys their freedom. If you violate that trust, then we're going to pull back. But we don't post any of our grandkids on social media. I don't have a Facebook page. I'm like, I, I, I again, I know, you know from a business perspective, you need to utilize that medium but we really try to regulate again, like you said, you can't regulate it all. But I think if you set up parameters like that, like when we were growing up, we would tell our kids that uh, for every half hour of TV you want to watch, you have to read for an hour. So, oh, you know, beautiful. you try to ba- yeah, yeah, you try to balance it. Uh, and, and again, I'm sure, you know, the stats on, 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 on screen time now, it's, it's like they spend, you know, 13 hours a day in front of a screen. So uh, that's great that you're doing that with your daughter. All right. Uh, I want to wrap it up with one more thing because we, you said you come from an agency and you know we're, we're both kind of have marketing backgrounds. So what's the best marketing uh, that you've ever used to help grow your audience? Uh, what what you know you, you you big digital background from an agency. What what has been one thing you can kind of share that uh, has worked well for you in building your audience? So. I would say that it's important to contextualize what my goals are. Um, and I would say to start with, you know, my goal in any content creation and anything that I'm doing is I don't play any kind of algorithm games. I don't play any kind of, you know, clickbaity type stuff. What I do is I write about what I think is important. I create content about what I think is important. I create content that I hope will help people and make the world a better place. So that is at the paramount of everything that I do. So when I build an audience around that, it's important to me to focus on building the right audience that wants that more so than doing the things that it would take to build a large audience, but having to sacrifice some of my values in order to maintain that audience, right? Like, you know, I have been very critical of the Facebook algorithm and how it encourages people to engage in certain types of content or behavior because I think that that manipulates people into creating things that they may not otherwise want to create. You should create what you think is important and go from there. That said, I will say as an agency uh, for others, Facebook ads have been incredibly valuable and incredibly useful. Um, great targeting. Uh, you know, I always say as a marketer, I love Facebook ads. As a human being, I hate them. Um, so I would say that that's, that's been really popular for me personally in terms of just having a 
a mouthpiece, a, a place to just go and be me unabashedly and authentically. Twitter has been great. And I just love the D, uh, I guess the, uh, de- it's not really decentralized. It's just more like the chaotic nature of Twitter. I've always really appreciated it works for me, but I would say that what I've come to really appreciate most over time is, um, the way that I've best grown the right type of audience has been my newsletter and blog functioning together where I'm writing content I care about. People can subscribe to that email, uh, that blog via email. I now do a podcast version of it. So for people that just want to listen to it, the newsletter is available as a podcast. So that's become the thing I'm most um, pleased with. And I've had a lot of success using a a company called Netline uh, to grow my email list because what I've done is I've created a number of different useful guides and those guides then uh, are put on this, you know, they're, they're placed all over the web. People download those guides and they, they make their way onto my email list. And I've actually gotten a lot of subscribers who are really fond of my content through that, uh, through that way of doing things. And then I would say yeah. in terms of everything I've ever done, the single most useful, the best thing I've ever done is start a podcast because I get to talk to amazing people. And it's remarkable the people that will give you an hour, hour and a half of their time just because you have a podcast. Best thing I've ever done. Well, again, it's like writing a book. It gives you credibility, whether you have credibility or not. And then when you have great content, when you have great content to go with it, it really, uh, again, raises you up above the rest. And and, uh, this has been fascinating. This is really, really good stuff. Uh, I appreciate you taking the time uh, to open up and and share about your life, some, you know, personally and professionally, uh, very interesting person. And like you said, we have so many kind of, mutual points of interest and, and common interests. And I got to find out how to get some of that Southwestern chicken and slaw that you're going to cook up. We'll have to figure out where we can meet uh, uh, and, and, and make that happen, but have thoroughly enjoyed having you on the show. Uh, appreciate your, your time and effort and energy and wanting to make the world a better place. And, and hopefully we can do it again in the not too distant future. Um, and I guess I would have to say that, this episode was shareable. Wait, don't leave. If you've never listened to my fancy outro, do it just once for me, please. Okay, if you enjoy shareable and you find it valuable, there's a few ways that you can support the show. One, you can share it on social media, which I strongly encourage. I mean, it's literally the name of the show, shareable. Two, you can review it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're an Overcast user, as many of my listeners are, make sure to click that star button on the episodes that you like. The third way that you can support the show is by blogging about it or discussing it on your own podcast or even by making a YouTube video where you talk about one of the episodes. And then the final way that you can support the show is by supporting it directly on Patreon. You can find the link in the show notes. Now, before I let you go, I want to tell you about one other thing. You see, Shareable is just one of many projects that I'm working on at any given time. I've got another podcast called Rogue. I do a live streaming show every week called The Heroic Council. I've got a blog where I release a blog post twice a week. And if you're looking to keep up with all sorts of different content that can help you grow and become a superhero in life, I want you to check out jeffgibber.me. That's where I list all of my current projects and projects that are coming up in the future, including my forthcoming book, The Lovable Leader. It would mean a lot to me if you could go and check out some of the other things I've worked on because I put just as much of my heart into those projects as I do into Shareable. Thank you so much for being a listener. Thank you for being a supporter. And I hope to see you here on the next episode of Shareable.